This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm former Congressman Paul Hodes here with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and also on the Blue Amp YouTube channel. In a historic vote, Kevin McCarthy has been removed as Speaker of the House. This means that Kevin McCarthy, who voted to overturn the election, who fought against any accountability for Donald Trump, who sheltered and protected figures like George Santos, Paul Gozar, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who censured Adam Schiff and opened a, quote, impeachment inquiry, unquote, into President Joe Biden with no evidence of wrongdoing, and who sided with the pro-Putin faction of the Republican Party by cutting out Ukraine aid, that Kevin McCarthy has been kicked out by Republicans, ostensibly because... He's just not radical enough. Now, I thought that what I saw during my time in Congress was pretty nutty. But this is nuts on steroids. This is the nutwing party. And to explain what's happening, really, I can't think of anyone better than Congressman Jamie Raskin, one of the most capable, incisive, and brilliant members of Congress serving the American people today. Congressman, we are just delighted to have you. Paul, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you and Matt today. So take us inside the room. When Democrats met to decide what to do yesterday morning, and then on the floor as this played out, what went on? What did you see and hear that people just won't get from watching C-SPAN or reading the paper? It was a unanimous consensus and a passionate consensus, as you saw on the House floor. Nobody needed to have his or her arm twisted in any way. On the contrary, people were getting up and simply contributing to the fervor around it. I, Because it's off the record, I don't feel comfortable quoting other people, but I'll quote myself. I mean, I got up and I made an impassioned speech about January 6th, and I said, Kevin McCarthy was there on that day, and he knew that Donald Trump was pulling the strings because he called Donald Trump and begged him to call off the insurrectionist army that had arrived and stormed the Capitol, his office, the Senate, the House, attacking the police officers and chasing Vice President Pence. And he asked Trump to call it off, and Trump wouldn't do it. Said, I guess they're they just care more about the election, fair elections than you do, Kevin. And yet McCarthy refused to do what Liz Cheney did, who was the chair of the Republican conference, which was to vote for impeachment. He refused to do what 10 other Republican members did. He said instead he would just look for an investigation. And yet when we came to negotiate an investigation, he advocated an independent 9-11-style outside commission with five Republicans, five Democrats, equal subpoena power, equal staff. And even though we were in the majority, we agreed to that. Benny Thompson agreed to that for the Democrats. And he pulled the plug on the whole outside commission idea because Donald Trump vetoed it, saying he didn't want any investigation at all. So then when Pelosi went forward to create an independent House Select Committee, 
to do it with, again, equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans. He did everything he could to block that and lobbied against it on the House floor. And when we created it anyway, then he appointed Jim Jordan, who was a central participant in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 election, to the committee. And then when we subpoenaed McCarthy to get him to testify about his involvement and what he saw and what he knew, he refused to comply with a congressional subpoena. So when all of that ended, he decided to give the uh, security tapes of the House of Representatives to one news entity, Fox News, and then launched into an impeachment investigation of Joe Biden based on nothing while he voted against the impeachment of Donald Trump for inciting an actual insurrection against the House of Representatives the first time that it happened in American history. So people were asking me, are you going to bail him out? I'm like, I will vote 15,000 times and 15 billion times for our leader, Hakeem Jeffries, before I would entertain any offer. But McCarthy didn't call me anyway. He didn't call any Democrats. And people were blaming us for the Civil War and the insurrection, the arts of insurrection, which they had trained their own people in. Gee, where did Matt Gates get the idea that it was all right just to overthrow the leader? At least they didn't use violence this time to do it. But MAGA Republicans have to solve the problems that MAGA Republicans create. Boy, after you lay out that litany, I really want you to get in touch with the Merriam-Webster people and have a new definition of chutzpah in the dictionary. It really is pretty darn incredible. All right, I, I just want to push you on one point. On Sunday, after, as you said, Kevin McCarthy blamed Democrats for the government nearly shutting down, which is what, what the kids call a DARVO, right? Deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. There was widespread reporting that was the final nail in the curve for, for as far as the Democrats were concerned. But so I want to ask you kind of a two-parter. Is that true? Did that was that really the straw that broke the camel's back for Democrats? And also, there was a lot of chatter over the weekend that maybe Democrats could get some important things, some real concessions out of doing a deal with Kevin McCarthy. So despite everything that you just laid out, if he had been willing, if he had initiated a conversation with Leader Jeffries, would Democrats have had any appetite to consider doing a deal to save Kevin McCarthy? Uh, I was in a similar position to most of my colleagues, which is we sat there in January and voted through days, through nights. We voted on 15 different ballots for Hakeem Jeffries. And if my vote's going to change, it's going to have to be at the invitation of Speaker Jeffries or Minority Leader Jeffries. He would have to come to us and say, hey, this is what we need to do in order to get X, Y, and Z. But I think his position was McCarthy had never approached him to ask for his help. So that's the first rule of politics. That's tip O'Neill 101. How come you didn't vote for me? You never asked me to, right? I mean, so yeah, look, there are, are very substantial, important things at stake, starting with hundreds of millions of dollars of aid to our besieged Democratic allies in Ukraine, resisting Putin's filthy, bloody, atrocity-filled aggression against their country. Uh, we want to get that done. Uh, we know that there is a commanding majority in the Senate to get it done. We think there's a very big majority in the House to get it done. Every member of the Democratic caucus and certainly dozens, if not more than 100 Republicans still support it who have not yet swallowed Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin's propaganda and disinformation, which have shaken shocking segments of the Republican Party. But still, 
it, it's not everybody over there. So we know we've got a majority on our side. So at the very least, we'll be able to do a discharge petition to get a bill out and put it on the floor. But there's lots of different ways we can make that happen. Bottom line is, I think all of us, nobody was psychologically predisposed to want to vote for Kevin McCarthy. It would have been a very bitter pill for most of the people in our caucus to swallow, if not everybody. But we understand what politics is like, and we were willing to do what needed to be done to get the work done for the American people in terms of the advancement of our social programs and climate work and aid to Ukraine and so on. But it just never happened. And of course, that was in keeping with everything we've seen from Kevin McCarthy from the very first from his election, that 15 ballot election. He was caving to the right, pandering to the right, constantly capitulating to the most extreme mega fanatic, fanatical elements to the point where we couldn't really tell the difference between Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, and Kevin McCarthy. I mean, that's just one Trump subservient, Trump mandated agenda. And then we saw that last week with shut down the government. Why did Trump want to shut down the government? Because he said that's the way to shut down these, quote, political prosecutions. In other words, he was willing to take paychecks away from more than a million service members. He was willing to shut down aid to women, infants, and children. He was willing to shut down the SNAP program. He was willing to shut down the ability of NIH, which is in my district, to take new patients signing up for clinical medical trials in the final stages of serious diseases like colon cancer and pancreatic cancer and cystic fibrosis and multiple sclerosis and so on. He was willing to do all of that on the off chance it would slow down his federal criminal prosecutions. And that's the cult leader that they've wrapped themselves around. So the press has mostly characterized this as being all about a small, they, a hard right faction, just a handful of Republicans. And in fact, in the introduction this today, I talked about the nut wing party as if this is just a small faction. So now let me argue against myself. Doesn't that really miss the point by a mile? I mean, 147 Republicans voted to overturn the election. They wanted this sham of an impeachment inquiry, which is only helping Trump. Almost half of them voted to shut down the government four days ago for no other reason than Trump thought incorrectly that it might slow down his various trials he's facing. 91 felony counts in state and federal courts. Isn't it fair to say at this point that this isn't about some fringe. It's really about the core of the Republican Party, that this is who the Republican Party is. This is what they've become. Yeah. I mean, the fringe has devoured the core, the extremist fanatical elements that they thought they could just kind of bring in for the purpose of votes with Donald Trump have actually taken over the party. And Liz Cheney is gone and Mitt Romney is gone and Adam Kinzinger is gone. And like the, the people who were profoundly conservative, don't get me wrong, and did not share my vision of America's future, but nonetheless were people who fundamentally believed in the constitutional order and the rule of law, those people are gone. I mean, what we've got is an authoritarian party. It is an authoritarian cult of personality around Donald Trump, the kind that you see in other parts of the world, Putin and Orban and Bolsonaro and al-Sisi and Erdogan. And we know what the historical antecedents of all of those are. 
I mean, these people are aspiring autocrats and dictators. Donald Trump is talking about executing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's talking about openly talking about using prosecutors to go after his political enemies. He wanted to shut down the government in order to stop his prosecutions. He is the one who is orchestrating the ridiculous impeachment exercise against Joe Biden for nothing. So they, this is uh, a guy who obviously doesn't have respect for the rule of law, but a party that's wrapped itself around his little finger. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to the Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of the Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about that impeachment inquiry for a second. Uh, it opened with an initial hearing this past Thursday. Your point-by-point -point dismantling of the Republican Party on it was, in my view, masterful. It went pretty viral. We tried to help that along with our own video, which I urge people to check out on YouTube on the Blue Amp channel. You called it the Seinfeld impeachment in that it's about nothing. And that was followed immediately after your presentation by the Republicans' own witnesses, like Jonathan Turley, saying there's no evidence here to support impeachment. It was a pretty brutal watch, honestly, and it was super uncomfortable for me. Actually, I'm going to turn this into two questions. One, did you feel a little uncomfortable for James Comer sitting next to you? He maintained a pretty good poker face, but oh my gosh, I, I could just see all of this kind of crumbling on him. But second, and maybe more important, is there a part of this, as you've gone after this fake impeachment inquiry. Is there a part of this that stands out or hasn't gotten enough attention in your mind that we can give some attention to right now? Yes, thank you, Matt. First of all, I, I got to say, I felt a teeny bit sorry for Kevin McCarthy yesterday, but that just shows you I, I'm a liberal. I mean, I, 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 I hate to see these entire, entire life and career dreams smashed and crumbling like that, even though he had hollowed himself out and completely prostituted himself to the mega right. I don't feel sorry yet for James Comer because we're still in the middle of this thing. They are still perpetrating this fraud on the American people and through Fox News actually propagandizing their followers to believe that there's some impeachable offense out there, which there's not. And thank you for watching that hearing, which I think was a decisive five or six hour refutation, demolition, takedown of everything that they've been saying based on nine months of aimless fishing expedition, empty handed wild goose chase pursuit. Nothing is there. So when you ask about what is it we're missing, one thing we're missing is kind of the geopolitics of this. Who says that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, which is a pretty remarkable thing to say when rank it with the, the Holocaust and other genocides and other events. But so he said, so he wants to rebuild the Russian empire and views his uh, as Alexander the Great and the, the czars of Russia and so on. So Vladimir Putin has always wanted to treat Ukraine like a subordinate entity, a vassal 
for whatever Russia wants. And Donald Trump, in complete cooperation with that Russian agenda, decided he wanted to use Ukraine in the same way. Now, Congress had voted hundreds of millions of dollars in security, economic, and strategic assistance to President Zelensky in Ukraine precisely to defend itself against Russian imperial aggression. And that was the moment when Trump decided, oh, we're going to hold this up until you do us a little favor. And what was the favor? He wanted Zelensky to say that to either launch a criminal investigation of Joe Biden or when they balked at that, he said, just say just make an announcement that there's a criminal investigation. Leave the rest to us. The same way he said oh, to the people at the Justice Department, well, just say that there was corruption in the election and then leave the rest to me and my friends in the House. We'll be able to take it from there in terms of stealing the election away from the people. But so, so that Ukraine shakedown was all part of this working agreement between Trump and Putin. We're going to use Ukraine for our own purposes. Putin, of course, wants it to be part of greater Russia. Trump, who is in every case sympathetic to Putin, didn't want the money, which Congress had voted for Ukraine to be going over there, but said he was going to hold it up until he got what he needed to guarantee his reelection, right? So that was the beginning of it. Then when Biden is going is clearly going to be Trump's opponent in 2020, that's when he deputizes Rudy Giuliani and his right hand man, Lev Parnas, to go gallivanting around Europe and Ukraine to prove that Vice President Biden, back when he was vice president many years before, had actually not been involved in the anti-corruption crusade with the Obama administration and with the Western nations of the world. It was a pro-corruption crusade. The reason they wanted to remove a corrupt prosecutor from his work as prosecutor general in Ukraine was not because he was in collusion with the corrupt forces, but because suddenly he was actually engaged in anti-corruption. But prosecutor general Shokin was roundly condemned by all of the NGOs and all of the anti-corruption groups for the corrupt work he was involved in. But they had an opening. Why? Because Hunter Biden had uh, decided to go on the board of the Burisma Corporation. So then they concocted a story that uh, Joe Biden had intervened to stop an anti-prosecution, an anti-corruption prosecution from taking place in Ukraine which was fabricated out of thin air. And I hold no brief for Hunter Biden joining that corporate board or any other by using his father's name. And if we want to talk about influence peddling and the abusive presidential names or whatever, fine, it's a separate conversation. We've got a whole special counsel who's working on Hunter Biden who's already brought charges against him, gun charges, which in any other scenario, the Republicans would be totally ballistic about and would be denouncing and abhorring, but they support it in that case. And of course, our position is we support the rule of law across the board. If Hunter Biden engaged in violations of law, then he should be prosecuted and he should pay the consequences if he's found guilty by a jury of his peers after his presumption of innocence is honored and his due process rights are honored. Our Republican colleagues will never say that. Even Donald Trump gets the presumption of innocence and he gets due process rights. But if he goes through all that and he's found guilty of, for example, being a sexual abuser and a defamer of women or 
a fraudulent inflator of the value of his properties. They say he's the victim. He's a victim. In other words, Donald Trump can never be guilty of anything, even when you have a jury of his peers indicting him and a jury of his peers finding him guilty. Didn't your committee colleague ask for a show of hands from all the members of the committee who agreed that if Hunter Biden is found guilty, he should face the consequences of law. And if Donald Trump is found guilty, he should face the consequences of law. Who would agree with that? And all the Democrats raised their hands. Yep, that that the law should apply. And all the Republicans were- illegal. None of the Republicans raised their hands, except I did see Chairman Comer began to raise his hand. It was like halfway up and he looked around and then he put it in tight. Yeah, so this is where we are. So uh, I want to go back to to a to the January 6th committee as a member of the committee and as the lead impeachment manager in the second Trump impeachment. You probably know more than anybody else on planet Earth about the crimes Donald Trump and his co-conspirators committed after the 2020 election and in the run up to the January 6th insurrection. As you've seen, the federal indictments of Donald Trump move forward, the Georgia state indictments, the Proud Boys leader being convicted for seditious conspiracy. What has stood out to you? Are there cases and convictions reflecting the work of the January 6th committee? Is there anything that isn't making its way into the legal system that you'd like to see that you think ought to be brought to light that that haven't yet been brought to light? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Most of the story, I think we were able to tell at the January 6th select committee hearings where we got into really painstaking granular detail about what happened. Now, there were certain things that were left off for various reasons. For example, we did not fully ventilate the role of the social media. We did not fully investigate the money dimension, although a lot of that was in there. And I think that the role of organized violent white supremacy and religious extremism were were understated. I think that in order to get everybody on the committee together, and there were different views, and some of it was partisan, and some of it was just ideological, and some of it was just you know where people came from and so on. There were just, I mean, like on any committee, leaving political party aside, there are going to be differences of opinion. There's differences of opinions on school boards and boards of corporation, right? So there were different opinions about things. And a lot of people thought it would be too far afield to really get into the way the social media were used to propagandize Trump's followers and then to organize Trump's followers and so on. Some of that was in there, but maybe not to the extent uh, some of us might have liked. But what was the real or what remains the real investigative task? Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, people like that were very much the transmission belt of Donald Trump's political will to dismantle the 2020 election and to seize the presidency and the violent extremist groups who acted as the stormtrooper vanguard of the assault on the Capitol. There was a reason why Roger Stone hustled to get out of town as quickly as possible as soon as he saw the violence explode. He basically said he was going to get the hell out of there. So Obviously, you don't need to determine all of the back channel conversations and transmission of specific instructions when Donald Trump was publicly basically telling everybody what to do. You got to go and you got to fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore. And when theft is involved, all of the rules are off. 
and dozens of comments like that, where he got the message both to the extremist inner ring, but also to the tens of thousands of people he called in as extra, extras to back them up. But I do believe that that the inside political coup against the election was pretty well coordinated with the violent insurrection. And some of the key players, of course, have not spoken, have blown off our subpoenas, or like in the case of Roger Stone, invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 100 times. So haven't told us what they know. When you take everything we've spoken about here, the run-up to the insurrection, all of the criminality involved there, all of the backstory that you laid out so beautifully, boy, nothing like having an amazing attorney to really lay things out for you. All the backstory of everything that's gone on with Ukraine that was the predicate for what's now happening with this unhinged impeachment inquiry. And then, of course, the very near government shutdown that we somehow made it through four days ago, followed by this unprecedented historic situation with deposing the Speaker of the House. It's very clear that there is I mean, dysfunction is sort of a, a nice word for it, but there's there there's something really sick going on within the Republican Party. My concern about all this is I, I was interviewing some pollsters from Global Strategy Group, you may know last week, and they were talking about their experience with talking to regular Americans in focus groups and the extent to which what regular voters hear is just kind of noise, dysfunction, and they're it's abetted by the media that tends to characterize things like this as government dysfunction, Congress failing to agree. How worried are you that all of this insanity will just get muddied in the media and then outright inverted on Fox News and that voters will just come away hearing that's a lot of noise, it's a lot of partisanship, it's a lot of dysfunction and kind of reach a it's a plague on both their houses type of conclusion. And as one of the Democratic Party's strongest communicators, what can we do to make sure that? Yeah, I'm not worried about that happening. I know that's happening. I mean, that's the entire strategy of fascist politics, which is to invert reality as much as possible and then to turn everybody off to democratic politics and government. You've got to check out this very fine book written by this man, Christopher Wiley, a young guy who worked at Cambridge Analytica for Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. And the Russians were all over it with their internet research agency, hundreds of people working to pump poison into the American social media system and our information environment. They set out in 2016 with several clear objectives. So one was to activate and mobilize really unstable and reactionary parts of the population. They put up these Facebook personality quizzes where they were trying to tease out and then identify people who exhibited three different traits, which they called the devil's triangle. Tell me if it sounds familiar to you. Psychopathy, Machiavelli. Oh boy. They were basically looking for people who mirrored Donald Trump. And it was two or 3% of the population. A lot of them were not involved in politics. Nobody ever tried to speak to them before. And they went right after them to activate them and mobilize them. Well, then they were looking for people, young African men. If we can't get them over to our side, maybe at least we can turn them off to the Democrats and turn them off to all politics. So they took 
true footage of Hillary Clinton, uh, I think, talking about super predators and saying Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and had a, a war on crime and they talked about super predators and just bombarded young African-American men and other demographics with that over and over again. Very clever strategy. But when people say America's so divided, America's so polarized, that's not a coincidence. I mean, we have had years of info war in our social eco-media system pumping ethnic, racial, ideological, religious poison into the bloodstream of America. So do I think that they will try to twist everything that just happened, for example, with McCarthy in the Civil War in the Republican caucus into more government dysfunction? I know they will. Of course they will do that. They'll just talk about, oh, that's Washington and that's Congress and so on. But look, we're going to expect mega Republicans to be mega Republicans. The question is, what are we doing? So I've turned my campaign into something called Democracy Summer, which is just educating high school and college age kids about the history, the real history of American politics and the struggles for change and equality and freedom and justice. And then we train them in the arts of knocking on doors and digital organizing and voter registration and fundraising and so on. I mean, that's what we need. While they're turning themselves into an authoritarian cult, we've got to be much more like a school. We've got to be about real education. And that's a tougher thing to do because we're teaching people critical thinking skills, everything the Republicans are trying to demolish. Let me just make one other point about what you said, Matt, about Ukraine, just to complete that story. Ukraine has been at the center of world politics when you think about it for several years, and it still is. That Putin's invasion of Ukraine, the kidnapping of thousands of children, the mass rape of Ukrainian women and girls, the, the bombing atrocities of civilian targets in Ukraine, all of this is the front line of the struggle between democracy and autocracy, because Putin is the ringleader of all of these authoritarian politicians and regimes and movements around the world, all of them, Orban in Hungary and Erdogan in Turkey and el-Sisi in Egypt and Bolsonaro in Brazil and Trump in Mar-a-Lago. And he is the one who ties all of them together. And he's got to be stopped in Ukraine. And the people of Ukraine are doing the aspiring free democratic world a huge favor in standing so tough against Putin. And it is no accident and it's no surprise to me that the one, while Speaker McCarthy caved on everything else that we wanted, he held back on Ukraine, thinking that would be enough to pull the Matt Gates and Trump clones and Putin's little helpers over to support him in Gates's drive to topple the speaker. And it didn't work because of I mean, th these people are like scorpions in a bottle. They hate each other, and it's just a cauldron of cutthroat ambition and so on. There's nothing that unites them in terms of principle. I mean, that's ultimately the great advantage we have against the authoritarians and the fascists. I mean, they're all in it for themselves. I mean, you saw the way the Democrats were unified. Look, the Democratic Party post-Donald Trump is a very different party than it was pre-Donald Trump. I mean, this is a battle-hardened group of veterans in the fight against authoritarians and insurrection and coups and all of it. And people are tough as hell. You got reporters saying, well, aren't you going to do the reasonable thing and support Kevin McCarthy? And he's a, a reasonable centrist and moderate now and so on. And everybody's just saying, bullshit. 
I mean, this guy tried to overthrow our government and we don't owe him anything. And we're supporting Hakeem Jeffries for Speaker of the House. And let's pull over some of their moderates because we, every day, Democratic members of Congress hear from moderate Republicans and independents saying, I can't take it anymore. I'm coming over to the Democratic Party. And we have got to be strong enough and supple enough and creative enough to seize on this moment to make, to create a landslide in 2024 and put the GOP out of business. I mean, Lincoln would want the Republican Party to end today. He created that as a pro-freedom, anti-slavery, pro-immigration, anti-know-nothing party, believing in science, believing in investment, public investment, like land grants and so on. The What calls itself the Republican Party today is a collection of fanatics and freaks and power mongers and corrupt businessmen like Donald Trump who want to exploit government for their own purposes. I, I can't top that as a note to end on, and I'm not going to try. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thank you so much for all of your insights and for being with us on Beyond Politics. It's great being with you guys. Stay close. Keep up the great work.